Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Hello and welcome to Bloomberg Surveillance. I'm Pim Fox in for David Gura. Tom Keen will be joining me in just a moment. Of course, Bloomberg Surveillance is brought to you by National Realty Managers of New York, New Jersey, Philadelphia, and Florida cash flow real estate. Offering safe, high-yield cash flow property units. See them at nria.net. Well, the news and the interest today has to do with banks, and we're looking at J.P. Morgan second quarter results coming in. And one of the things that I wanted to focus on was to understand uh, about their revenues. And here to help us understand more what's going on is uh, Kate BlackRock Chief Equity Strategist. Kate, thank you so much for being here. Great in blue. I was watching you on Bloomberg Television before you came in. Uh, what are your thoughts about uh, how the banks are doing? And do you feel that uh, this whole conversation about whether they're going to release more dividends and, and more do more buybacks, will, will that uh, expand? Yeah, absolutely. I think the cash return strategy for the banks is a huge, huge positive and something that I think many investors who've stayed away from the sector and who have avoided owning financials, maybe perhaps in favor of tech stocks, need to re-examine their positioning at this point because of this. Um, and I think, you know, J.P. Morgan is going to be the first to talk about this, but the really positive results of all of the stress tests should really underpin, you know, an income, not just a growth strategy for the for the sector. If they can't make money, and they certainly can, yeah. right? I mean, but the, 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 I was listening to the hearings, uh, Janet Yellen, uh, uh, for Congress, and one of the things that came up was, uh, you know, banks earning, uh, making a lot of money, and when will the Federal Reserve change its disposition towards the banks in order to let them give back more money to their shareholders. What did you? What, what is your thoughts about that? Remember we had this conversation a couple years ago where everyone started to say the banks are becoming utilities, right? They're going to be so overregulated that we're going to be at a place where the banks can't actually grow their profits. They can't return additional cash. They are just going to be very stagnant entities. And that's really not the case anymore. You know, while they may not have the same types of growth that we might have seen before the crisis, uh, the quality of the growth we think is much better. We think the regulatory pressure is going to be considerably less than it has been in the last couple of years. They've gone through a lot of cuts, right? right? I mean, they brought down the headcount, all of the big banks. And I know we're going to be getting Wells Fargo and Citibank. That's right. They've cut their expenses. They've really rethought their business lines. Gotten out of a lot of stuff. And a lot of lending goes other places now. And and most of these banks are very deposit rich at this point. One of the things we're watching, too, is the deposit betas. Every time the Fed raises rates, banks are not passing that on to depositors no, right no. away. They don't have to. There's not as much competition for deposits. CD rates are not 3%. Oh, gosh, we can't get anything. So I guess the point is that's really good for bank profits. We think the Fed is going to continue to normalize at a slow pace, right? And we, we can go through every different piece of language and speech and commentary over the oh, last no, couple of days. Oh, no, please don't. No, I'm exhausted we by that, it, right? Yeah. But, the, but the point being that this is a continuous path. 
And this should really support bank earnings in addition to better macroeconomic growth and in addition to uh, what we think is going to be improved appetite for loans. You know, we've just uh, we just had an addition here in the studio because uh, a gentleman that you know has just joined us. Tall, handsome. Always wearing go. great I, bow ties. A bow tie. You yeah. know who he is, right, Tom? <laughs> I wore the red. Uh, a daughter gave me this bow tie. This is a red bow tie. Good morning, everyone on radio that can see bow ties in our studio. Pim Fox in for David Gurr. David Gurr, uh, team coverage in Sun Valley, Idaho. Is he on an airplane now, Pim, or is he still there? I mean, do they do a Friday thing at Sun uh, Valley? Yeah. I don't really I, know. I, I don't know. Haven't been. I don't. He's, he was I, near I a snake yeah. yesterday. He told me that like they threw him some peanuts. Did you know that? Oh it, no, I didn't you know, know that. Because, yeah, the way it works in Sun in, uh, apparently is that the reporters uh, and everyone who is there that make it this thing mm-hmm. because if it's not being covered, yeah. you know, if it's not exclusive, <clears throat> then why have it? Yeah. Uh, the the uh, reporters are penned in, and they can't necessarily mix with anybody, so they kind of run after them. And I yeah. thought, well, they throw yeah. you some crumbs. They yeah. throw the peanuts at the reporters. <laughs> yeah. I, you know? it, that doesn't happen at BlackRock. He had a good set of interviews there, to say the least. Kate Moore with us with BlackRock. We say th- thank you to Pim Fox more than anything for coming in uh, early in this morning. Kate Moore, I, one of the high points of my uh, week was the Economic Club of New York lunch with Mr. Coulter of the uh, uh, Securities and Exchange Commission. Mr. Clayton, excuse me, of the, of the SEC. And I saw there Kurt Scheck of the CFA Institute, the mm-hmm. Charter of Financial Analyst Institute. Then we were talking about CFA in old times and all that. Does that study work now in this market? Does traditional security analysis work for Kate Moore right now? Well, absolutely, but it's part, not all, of the process. I think this is what I often tell you know juniors and young people coming up in the business. You have to understand how to do traditional analysis, but you also can't be wed to any single investment style. I mean, in the sense that you have to be able to be flexible and take in other parts of, uh, or you know, expand your process to really reflect what's going on in the market. And by that, I mean, you know, Tom, you and I were talking a little bit about technical analysis and the importance that has. I think you have to be very, very aware of sentiment, the impact that different liquidity regimes might have on your opportunity to realize your thesis. It's It would be great if we could just say, this is a good company that should earn X and therefore will own it. There are lots of other things at play here. And so a good analyst has a really multifaceted approach. The multifaceted approach is fundamental analysis in looking at the religion of the day, which is use of cash, is the backbone of your optimism that it's a new CEO, a new board that will continue to distribute cash even as we have higher valuations? I think my optimism is about um, you know, number one, positioning. We were saying this before that there's just not a lot of love or, or excitement, not for the broad equity market, or a lot of people putting additional money to work, um, as well as for some key names and, and sectors that we think are interesting. But I would also want to p- point out something else, which is um, if you don't pay attention to the crowding in in certain sectors uh, and understand why that crowding is happening, it makes it really hard for you to reallocate and take advantage of the turns. We talked about this last night at a dinner. I was at the arbitrary nature of the 12-month capture period of the calendar year uh, for returns and how frustrating it can be for some of the fundamental um, portfolio managers there to have to live by that calendar year. But hiring people that have the ability to take that technical and the positioning uh, and, you know, sort of 
I guess, a kind of more high-frequency uh, approach to in- investing in a stock or a theme uh, into consideration and complementing that with their traditional uh, methods. Yeah, that's a really good point, Pim Fox. I know you've lived this for years with your coverage of equities, this idea of people play to the bonus, which doesn't click in now, but in about four months, whammo. Yeah. yeah. Can I just can we just do a little whammo on J.P. Morgan for just a second? What do you got? Uh, well, I just want to mention, you know, we're leading right now. J.P. Morgan reported FICC sales and trading revenue for the second what quarter. What was that number? No, wait. Missed the average analyst estimate, right? And we're looking at trading revenue, $3.22 billion. The estimate was... But that was expected, right? Keep going. Sales and trading, one, 1.59, 1.62. Missed there. Uh Investment banking, pretty good, right? 170 mm. versus one. Anyway, the numbers are the numbers. But um, second quarter return on equity, 12%. Percent. 12%. 12% is pretty darn good. Yeah. And, you know, if we get the rest of the sector doing the same, I think the skeptics will really have to rethink the way they're positioned. Right, because they're shrinking what they're not good at. Yeah. I'm going to just extrapolate out a little bit further and say the profitability of U.S. companies is far superior to that of, of many of its developed market peers. And a lot of times when we talk about uh, valuation disconnects or the differentials between, say, non-U.S. Um, stocks and the U.S., we have to look at not just the composition of the market, but also the profitability. And I think the fact that we have some of our biggest anchor companies achieving 12% and higher ROE, uh, you know, it demands that we in have an, higher multiples. In, in- in this environment. In a one and a half, two percent growth environment. What I do you think, Tom? Did that did that thesis because we didn't do any of the charts for you. We could. No, but, uh, I, I mean, we could do the JP Morgan chart and you know <clears throat> but I wanted to add maybe you can Tom, even you come in well, on this. You know what an inside day is, right? An inside day in yeah. trading, okay. Yesterday I think was an inside day. Um, I wanna come back yeah, I what does that tell you about how people place a value on equities now? There's no, there's no premium in equities, or is there? No, I think with the dampened volatility, it's an odd market, as Kate uh, wrote up. And uh, thank you, Business Insider, for that smart article, uh, Ms. Moore. I believe it was yesterday. Kate, I want to come back and talk about how the media and, frankly, our audience really doesn't understand the size of these behemoths. Kate mm-hmm. Moore, very uh, big on the bank. She's not going to give you buy, hold, sell on the individual banks. But I really want to walk through the Bloomberg terminal and look at the just the sheer mass, almost like an aircraft carrier going through the water. And there's two aircraft carriers, Michael Barr, and they hold Megatron up above the ocean before they drop Megatron. We don't understand how big those aircraft carriers are. I want to say something about Megatron, but that's another story. Can you tell us a Transformers weekend at the Keene household? Pim Fox in for David Gura. Mr. Gura traveling, so is the president. I don't think Mr. Gura, Pim, is on Air Force One. The president is migrating back from Paris to America. I believe he's heading Did for Did you watch the parade? I watched the parade. I love it. I have witnessed you the love Bastille a parade. parade. I have actually been to it in my ute. Really? It was a very hot Parisian day. And I, I did see Charles de Gaulle for a blink for a whispered moment. Really? But they really do it right. They do. They did then right, and they today was. We don't have an equivalent. You see the flyby. I missed the fly. I see the helicopters come in. 
That was, you know, the, the, Thank the you helicopters. Thank you for not to speak French, by the way. Oh, no, I did that on television, and they oh, said never yeah. again. Kate Moore with us, who can speak fluent French, with BlackRock as we look at equities. Kate, I want to talk about mass and size. To give you an idea, folks, J.P. Morgan is about, uh, BlackRock, rather, is about one-twelfth the size of J.P. Morgan, depending on what metric you look at. Kate Moore, Jamie Dimon's assets are 13% of American GDP. The scale here and the size, the mass of these banks, and not just J.P. Morgan, but others, is extraordinary. Net revenues of 11, um, uh, uh, per 11 billion per quarter. Uh, net income of, of $3 billion. Operating income, of course, has come back great over the last 10 years. What is the advantage of that mass to a long-term investor? It's interesting when you're giving these incredible numbers, Tom, I've started to think about how everyone only talks about the gigantic size of the tech sector. Yes. And how dominant that's become in terms of market indices and fails to realize how incredibly important still the banks are, not just to the market, but to our overall economy. So I think, you know, the message I'm taking away from the, the just sort of the headline skimming I've done of the earnings thus far has been that when you have the big behemoths in our economy, in our financial system, in a very healthy place, we should feel confident about the sustainability of the market. All right, so we're confident about the sustainability of the market. Yeah. yeah it, you're, I like the way you couldn't see, you can't see that though on radio. How would you describe that shrug of the shoulders? What would it, how would you describe it? Okay, well, so let me just give you an e example. Go I, ahead. We always have to talk about magnitude here. So at BlackRock, and as part of BlackRock Investment Institute, we have a proprietary indicator of, um, you know, macroeconomic growth. We call it the BlackRock Macro GPS. It basically combines, you know, the same kind of high-frequency macro data, but with all of our big data insights, stuff that, you know, the incredible tech teams in uh, San Francisco help help us, you know, pull out. And this gives us, we think, a pretty good read on the U.S. and, and developed market economies. Okay, so it looks like our estimates are significantly above that of consensus. And that's great. But what I always point out to clients is we have to pay attention to the y-axis when we're comparing these two lines. Because when you look at it, we're still talking about 2% growth for G7. So what those of you on the radio didn't hearing from the radio didn't see was that I sort of shrugged. We're in a kind of a sustainable market. I'm not talking about a 12-15% annualized return forever and ever type of market. We think it's going to be more modest, same as we think that the, the sustained economic expansion um, you know, can go on for some time, but is also of a lower magnitude. So uh, better than expectations, but not shooting the lights out compared to history. Well, you can certainly connect that with the whole cost savings effort that is in the actual industry of delivering these kinds of financial products. Because if the gross is, is going down, then you've got to figure out a way uh, to uh, to modify your, your expenditures. Yeah, but I, I agree with that, Pim, totally. But, Kate, we forget that they're in the loan business. I think the number one thing, and they highlighted it. Pim, I would suggest J.P. Morgan has the best clarity of earnings release. And right at the top of the PowerPoint, they've got loan growth. Other financial companies aren't doing loans. I guess, uh, yes, and I would just add, I would really believe at this point it is not too uh, bizarre to say that they are really in the trust business. They have to, and I don't mean that in a legal sense, although I guess- You mean the trust business, trust us. Yes. Absolutely. And I think that that is right. I mean, yeah. uh, and 
Go ahead. Yeah, just last question, Kate Moore, before we run out of time. Yes. Large cap, mid cap, small cap. Where's the value? Where's the value? You know, I have to be honest with you. I am a little bit uh, biased towards the large cap space at this point. It's it's hard because the small cap is kind of when all over the map. When you interviewed with Larry Fink, that's what he demanded, right? Right. I'm Absolutely. Kidding. It's a joke. He, you know, yeah. he demanded many things, but not that I have a, a dominant preference for size. I think at this point, <clears throat> right. you know, because we're not talking about three and a half percent GDP growth, because we're talking two percent, we need to really think about the companies okay. that can sustainably earn in that environment. Richly rewarding, Kate Moore. Thank you so much with BlackRock on uh, too many topics uh, this morning on the equity market. She says, "Be in this market." Pim Fox and Tom Keen. This is Bloomberg. This is Real Joy. Quickly here, Megan Murphy uh, joining us. She is the force behind the new Bloomberg Business Week. And I really want to congratulate you with a celebration and the joy of your cover photo and really wonderful article on Mr. Blake uh-huh. Fine and Goldman Sachs. It's a celebration, I guess, of his career. What did you learn in putting that story together? I think we just continue to learn how resilient Lloyd Blankfein is as a banker. And personally, one of the most interesting things he's done recently is he's come out on social media. He's taken to Twitter. And this is someone who hasn't been known for really taking a stance on big social issues. Internally, he is a Goldman in terms of enforcing things like diversity and the importance of women. Uh, but publicly now, mm-hmm. he's come out you know, c- criticizing the president for taking yep. America out of the Paris Climate Accord, ribbing him, trolling him, <clears throat> we'd say, about Infrastructure Week and some other issues. And this is a guy who's right. not fading quietly into the night, that's for sure. Just because of time, we've got to switch to Washington. When do the bodies start moving at the White House, Megan? When do we start? <laughs> you mean this happens in every administration. When do we see new faces? Well, look, I think we're going to be due some sort of change. It looks like we're going to go into the summer without a big legislative achievement. And I think there still is so much infighting and discontent about the state. They cannot get away from Russia. There's a big news story breaking this morning that there was a former counterintelligence Russian person accompanying the lawyer who met with Don Jr. about this alleged Hillary Clinton intelligence. That story is only going to get worse today. Going into the weekend, it's another headlines dominated by Russia. The White House needs a change. They need to change it by themselves by getting a grip on this. But I do think we will see new faces sooner rather than later. There's something called a budget, right? <laughs> what budget? What health care? What tax reform? Look, this is a White House. It's a one-story one story place right now. You, you know, every day we go by thinking we've heard and they fully disclosed, been transparent that everything's out there and every day something new breaks. These people in the White House are panicked. Some of them are going to be looking for the exit themselves. They're seeing their entire careers that are going to be tarnished. There are serious people in there who wanted serious reforms on issues of serious importance to conservatives in this country. They are not getting it. You can start to see the whites in the eyes. People are panicked. Wow, that's a lot to digest. When, it is. When, when, mean, will, when will individuals, when will people, the citizenry, begin to feel the effects yeah. of all of this turmoil? Look, Trump's got a 40% base. He's keeping that 40% base. That 40% base actually likes what they're seeing. So they like the sort of middle finger up to the establishment, even on a foreign policy level. The issue is, you know, going forward into 2018 with people really reckoning with the effects of a possible 
uh, healthcare right. failure, and they they want something that's going to affect their pocketbook. That's what they want. They want tax right. reform. They want job stimulus. They want infrastructure. They are not right. getting that right now. Very quickly, do you agree with Greg Vallier that the House is at risk that the Republicans could lose the House midterm? I mean, it's so hard. The math on the House is so hard for them. Yeah, but look, I mean, we're getting into an area where Republicans are showing themselves to be incapable of getting any legislative achievement through. They have the White House. They have the Senate. They have the House. They have okay. nothing to show for it. Megan, I want to say congratulations. A double issue, a smart essay on Brussels and the EU and, of course, their relationship to the United Kingdom. And your first read of the weekend, if you're on Global Wall Street, on Lloyd Blankfein and Goldman Sachs. This is Bloomberg. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. And then, of course, we can look here at the Banking Derby. Citigroup out earlier. J.P. Morgan out earlier. We get the, excuse me, the initial, I'm gasping, Pim, over You're Wells Fargo. You're doing it like a horse race. Wells Fargo, it is. Wells Fargo numbers and, you know, I mean, they're what they are. They've got credit losses like everybody else. Efficiency ratio, I guess, is important. I go to the press release uh, where they've got net income up 5%, diluted earnings up 6%. In revenue, this is this is really interesting. Net interest income up six percent because it's more of a. I would suggest him, and we'll talk to Ken Leon in a moment. <coughs> Excuse me, Z massages the numbers. It's more of a nominal GDP bank. It's more like in the American banking growthiness. Well, community. that's only because you come with a lot of historical baggage. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, you know that. I mean, everybody informs. I mean, the banks, you know, goes all the way back to the first National Citibank and, and so on. And uh, uh, Citibank with Walter Riston. And so we have these uh, images. I just want to point out what the stock is doing right now. What's which it doing? Is that it's up about four tenths of a percent compared to JP Morgan, which is down two tenths. Yeah. I beg your pardon, Goldman Sachs, which is down by two-tenths of a percent. It has been management change at Wells Fargo. We talked to Allison Williams about that. We've had good perspective this morning from Ken Leon with CFRA about the banks. He's got four-star outlooks there. There's little S&P stars being a value. Ken Leon, what is the Wells Fargo distinction besides the yellow stagecoach over on 3rd Avenue? The distinction really is it's historically been stable performance coming from a large franchise in traditional consumer and commercial lending. And of course, you know, that kind of tipped over with the problems they had with their retail marketing. Um, the capital markets business for Wells Fargo just doesn't have the magnitude that the other banks that you've mentioned. And also, when we look at a rising rate environment, uh, Wells Fargo should benefit from that particularly on their asset side with loan deposits and other sources. So Wells Fargo, just it's almost like a super regional bank than a diversified global bank. I just want to mention shares of Wells Fargo. They're down about 1% in pre-market trading. Also, J.P. Morgan shares down about 1% right now, though uh, Citigroup getting uh, a boost. It is up uh, more than half a percent in pre-market trading. And, um, you know, one of the things you got to ask, Leon, is uh, what – is is has everyone already bought the stocks that they you know 
everyone got told this idea, buy financials, they'll be good, they'll expand, they'll give some more repurchases and so on, and uh, uh, dividends will increase. Has that already filtered through? Is that already a, a done and dusted deal? So the, there's really been several stages. After the Trump election, we had an enormous run of financials, particularly banks. They eased off in the first quarter, and I think since May, they're up 8%. Uh, looking ahead to the second half of this year and into next year, um, I think the outlook is still positive because they're going to benefit on improved spreads with rising rates. Uh, also, the capital markets is the big question, and at some point in this conversation, maybe we should talk about Washington. Let's talk about that right now. What about Washington? How do they change uh, the banking of 2020? You know, so in, in terms of large visible changes from Congress, the answer is no. Dodd-Frank legislation, Congress is, as we all know, absorbed with health care and tax reform. The subtleties, I think, is more positive for the banks. And this really relates to the Federal Reserve and the U.S. Treasury. What I would be following is not changes in Dodd-Frank, but some modifications of rules and regulation like the Volcker Rule. And that will help in terms of higher trading revenue. Uh, last week, a uh, Trump administration appointed a n- new vice chair for supervisor. Re- and this was the seat that Dan Trula had, Randy Qualls. And he, he will bring in a more pragmatic view of easing some of the complex and sometimes contradictory regulation among the four or five agencies. All this sits under the Trump administration, but they've got to work with the Fed. Do you believe that, uh, that Janet Yellen will be uh, saying goodbye soon? funny you mention that because I actually put a note here. So uh, coming up early in 2018, both the chair, uh, Yellen, and also Stanley Fisher, the vice chair, could be up. I think the barometer that President Trump watches uh, with Secretary Minocha is really uh, the stock market, and that's his kind of scorecard of how well he's doing. And if uh, Chairman Yell- chair Yellen is doing fine in terms of managing monetary policy, and there's confidence in the markets. Um, you know, I think there might be a good chance that they get reappointed. But, you know, we're going to be watching that as well. Uh, Ken Leon, uh, a few more questions before you write your research note. Within the three banks that we've seen today, PIM's already highlighted some of the distinctions. Which one's leading the way? Is it, is it just such a jumble you don't know yet? Or can you say Citigroup's outdistancing the others within the tactical battle of 2017? So it's, it's all about the rate of change and return to shareholders. And I think City of the three that have reported is showing improvement and maybe having a, a better delta of, especially after the stress tests and the second quarter results, the ability to increase dividends right. and share buyback. And they haven't been able to do that or allowed to do that. J.P. Morgan was solid. Um, they would get an improvement later this year, perhaps would improve okay. trading and fixed income. Ken Leon, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with CFRA. We'll hear much more. He was great. Pimmett, the hardest thing for these analysts is the good spirit of coming on with us right when the earnings come out. Sure. It's a lot easier an hour well, later. It's like asking me to read and speak at the same time, which I can barely do. They don't one ask of those me to do that. They, don't, they, they just make they you do that. They ask you. They just uh-huh. me. They don't even. Um, it, uh, you know, one of the, the, the context for this, uh, just to uh, give it to you, we're talking about all the bank earnings. Um, First Republic, one of the banks that, uh, you know, yeah. does, you said in that quote, they don't get talked about. 
um, missing estimates in the uh, in the second quarter for earnings per share. We're going to get more details uh, with that, and also we'll take a look at yeah. maybe PNC Bank. This is really timely, a conversation with the president of the Dallas Fed, and he's a unique president. Robert Stephen Kaplan is not the monetary PhD you would think about, Dr. Kaplan, of course, with his good work at Harvard uh, over the years, and really thinking about leadership and the transition of leadership as well. And let me begin, uh, Robert Kaplan, with the idea of why you're in Mexico City. You and I know the research heritage of your Dallas Fed, of our southern border. Did you have to climb a wall to get to Mexico City today? No. No, didn't need to climb a wall at all, no. Uh, no we have a very long-standing relationship at the Dallas Fed with the Central Bank of Mexico and with senior government officials of Mexico. So I come here regularly and officials from Mexico come to the 11th district regularly. But this is a very important relationship. Yes. Uh, Texas is the largest exporting state in the country and Mexico is our largest largest uh, trading partner. Have your good PhD, the legendary Dallas team, the, the, the PhDs there, have they quantified what a Trump wall would mean to the GDP of Mexico or to Texas and the 11th district, or for that matter, to America? Well, let me let me let me state it more uh, positively. What I'd, I'd say the two key points are: uh, one, the trading relationship between the United States and Mexico. I think, in our research at the Dallas Fed shows, is very critical uh, to competitiveness of the United States. And what do I mean by that? Seventy um, percent of the goods that are imported from Mexico to the United States are what are referred to as intermediate goods, meaning they're goods that go back and forth across the border as part of integrated supply chains and logistical arrangements. And further, 40% of the content of U.S. imports from Mexico is U.S. content. Right. So this is a very different trade relationship than, say, the relationship with China, which is, is primarily or heavily final goods. This relationship has allowed U.S. companies to be more competitive in their manufacturing. It's allowed us to grow jobs in the United States. And if we didn't have this trading relationship, we right. would likely lose those jobs elsewhere in the world, probably to Asia. President Kaplan, you know I've got a great team here at Bloomberg helping me out, making me smarter on this Friday. Let me begin with Michael McKee on NAFTA. What does Robert Kaplan need out of new NAFTA negotiations? Well, as a central banker, I'm going to be careful about uh, not commenting on a specific trade negotiation. Right. Okay, fair. Other than to say, I do, I, I'm, I'm optimistic uh, in talking to parties on both sides. I, I'd be optimistic that the importance of this trading relationship and the fact that it's much more of a strategic uh, uh, supply chain, sophisticated logistical relationship, I think that's being appreciated. And I'm, I'm actually optimistic, relatively optimistic and hopeful. And people in Mexico are, too, that this agreement will be renegotiated in a successful way. We just heard testimony from your boss, Chair Yellen, in Washington. Help me with the word transitory. Our Gianna Smilak is looking at transitory. Uh, Rob Kaplan, I've got a definition back to 1374 in Chaucer. I want to know Kaplan's definition of transitory inflation, and is that uh, disinflation, right. rather, and is that going to end at 830 this yeah. morning? 
Well, uh, there's two parts of this inflation question. Number one, as, as, your, as your viewers know, uh, at 4.4% at unemployment uh, and relatively low amount of labor slack, and, and I look, by the way, at uh, U6, which is the uh, unemployed plus discouraged workers plus people working part-time for economic reasons, and that's still not far away from the pre-recession low. It's 8.6%. At that low level of uh, unemployment, you would historically have seen more inflation pressures. We're not uh, so far. March was weak. April and May were a little stronger. And I believe strongly that some of this is transitory, meaning so there's some one-time factors in the March numbers, but I think some of it is not transitory. Uh, Technology-enabled disruption, the fact that workers are being replaced by technology, that shoppers can use technology and have much more pricing power. Uh, I think businesses have far less pricing power right now than any time in my lifetime. And I think, I think because of that phenomenon, as well as to some extent globalization, in that goods and services are being to some extent competed for globally, I think, uh, I think we need to accept that some of this muted inflation is the fact we're in a different kind of economy than we were in five that's, years ago, 10 years ago, and 15 years that's ago. That's brilliant. That's a Kaplan distinction. Let's go right to that. The pricing power issue. Is this a different pricing power battle than the one that made Jack Welch famous years ago at Generous Electric? It's dramatically different. And the reason for that is... Uh, the rate of disruption, and let me, for, let me explain what disruption is. Please. New business models being replaced by more efficient models that are technology enabled. And you go right down the list. The film industry, uh, you know, Kodak and Polaroid being replaced by the digital phone. Uh, retailers being displaced by Amazon. Uh, Uber displacing taxis. It goes on and on and on and on. Right. And because of that, businesses... Uh, even if they have wage pressure, which I think there will be more wage pressure in the months ahead, it is much harder for them to pass that on to consumer because consumers have far more choices and, and <clears throat> traditional business models are being supplanted at a rate I haven't seen in my lifetime right. by new business models that are cheaper and, and better value for the consumer. And I think that's having a real effect on inflation. If you're just joining us, Michael, uh, uh, Robert Kaplan joining us, rather. Excuse me, Robert Kaplan of the Dallas Fed on Bloomberg Radio, Bloomberg Television Worldwide. Okay, I, I said Michael. Michael Dell's one of your constituents in Austin, uh, Texas. You say Michael Dell's right. going to see wage growth. When's he going to see it? Uh, I think we're already, I got to tell you, in my conversations with business leaders throughout the 11th District and, and throughout the country, and in our surveys, we're already seeing wage pressure for skilled workers, but we're now starting to see more wage pressure for unskilled workers. Uh, companies I talk to talk about the term churn. Uh, workers are leaving, unskilled workers are leaving for higher wages, and they realize they're going to have to pay more to keep those workers. And so I, I think uh, with a lag, uh, you're going to start to see more wage pressure, I believe, in the months right. ahead. Uh, and, and we're seeing wage short, labor shortages, I should say, across industries, but now increasingly for unskilled workers. And so that, that makes me think right. we're going to see more wage pressure. Robert Kaplan, I think you and John Williams out in San Francisco are acutely attuned to currency dynamics. Uh, when you and I were at the Council on Foreign Relations weeks ago, you had beautiful analysis of the timeline of rate movements versus balance sheet movements. Our Carl Riccadonna is focused on the dollar dynamics of unloading that balance sheet. Do we 
care about currency movements when we finally taper to this and taper to that? Yes, sure. We we certainly... uh, Currencies and the dollar strength or weakness is something we watch carefully. Listen, I'm sitting right now in a country that's had enormous currency volatility, and that has spurred inflation here. And the central bank in Mexico has had to raise rates literally 10 times uh, over the last number of months. And so a very weak currency or very volatile currency can have an effect. My own judgment, though, on the balance sheet unwind in the United States, I think we've designed it to be done gradually. Uh, and in a way that is phased in that I believe uh, will uh, I believe and I expect it will right. it will have a minimal impact on the treasury and market ba- mortgage backed securities markets but I, we've designed it that way to be very slow gradual so it minimizes the disruption to those markets. Robert Kaplan, I've never done this. I'm going to do it now with you, and I know you're going to say I don't want to answer that, but you've got to. You are more qualified than anyone <laughs> in the history of the Federal Reserve System going back to 1917 to talk about leadership and transition. Your classic book, okay. What to Ask the Person in the Mirror, you had a beautiful thing for HBR years ago called The Pledge. Advise our politicians how they get to June of next year with the presumed retirements of Chair Yellen. I know you're going to say we don't know that. Or Vice Chairman Fisher. I know you're going to say we don't know that. In empty governor seats. What's the best practice for the politicians in Washington to get to a good and better Fed in 2019? So you're right. I won't comment on potential candidates and the prospects of that happen. But I will say that. But I will say this. uh, There are two major qualities I would highlight uh, in a Fed chair, a Fed governor or even a Fed president, but certainly in a Fed chair. Number one, the person he or she must be a uh, respected and expert person that can analyze the economy and have views on monetary policy that are respected. They have to be able to stand on their own two feet in that regard and be respected. And the reason that's so critical is the second part of the job, which is they've got to be able to mobilize a consensus, forge a consensus among presidents and governors. And it's much easier to do that if you, yes, you have interpersonal skills and people skills, but it's much, much easier to do that if you're respected Uh, in your own views, it's much easier to forge a consensus. And I think the next chair needs to have those two qualities. I believe Janet Yellen does have those qualities. And if there's a replacement, the replacement needs to have those qualities. We have an eclectic Fed. I think of Richard Fisher with his unique work at the Dallas Fed before Robert Kaplan. I think of others over the years, Mr. Warsh and others. We have Mr. Quarles being appointed, and I know you're not going to talk about other names. How crucial is it to have a monetary PhD a la Chair Yellen, a la Bill, uh, Bill Dudley, and certainly a la the giant Stanley Fisher. How important is it to have a monetary PhD within that triumvirate of a chairman and two vice chairmen? Uh, I, I think having very strong grounded PhD skills, and I'm speaking now as someone who's not a PhD, by the way, as you know, I'm not even an economist. Uh, I'm a business person. Some people but would suggest that's an advantage, that, Robert. Somebody would say that's an advantage, Robert well, Kaplan. He just, he's flying I back understand. from France right now. <clears throat> okay. So <laughs> I would say you need to have some number of people with Ph.D., strong technical 
uh, fundamental skills. And then I do think you need some number of people around the table that have a different background, business background, and I think the combination of those two is very, very powerful. And so I won't go so far as to say which seats, which, that, which need to have which skills, but I think as long as mm -hmm. you've got a mix and you've got a leader that is, is good at organizing and orchestrating that mix, I think right. the Fed should and does work and will work very effectively. Uh, President, one final question, if I may. Is this a fully employed America? Is this a what? I didn't fully catch employed. the word. Is this Sorry. a fully employed, a fully yeah, employed America? I'd say we're, it's an America that's getting very close to being fully employed. I mentioned U6 earlier. Uh, the pre-recession low was 8.1% in unemployment plus discouraged workers plus people working part-time for economic reasons. I prefer that measure over the headline unemployment rate because I think it's a measure. Uh, 8.1% was the pre-recession low. We're at 8.6% right now. That tells me if we're not at full employment, we're moving close to getting at full employment. So I think the Fed is getting very close to meeting its full employment mandate. I'm not sure we're there yet, but I think we're moving toward getting there. This is the interview of the day. With great respect to the president of the Dallas Fed, we are all transfixed by health care. We are transfixed by heroin and opioid. And it's nice to have an adult in the room. He is from eastern Oklahoma, where there is the Montgomery VA Center, the St. Francis Hospital of Muskegee, now in Tulsa, of course. He is the senator from Oklahoma, Dr. Coburn. Tom, it is an honor to speak to you as this nation grapples with health care. You've delivered four million babies. What <laughs> does this plan mean to the families of Oklahoma? Forget about the suits and ties and the lobbyists. What's it mean to those people in the every once in a while one where you save their life? Well, I, I think, Tom, thank you, first of all, for allowing me to speak to you. I listen to your show a lot when I drive early in the morning. Uh, I don't think health care gets fixed in Washington. And let me just digress for a minute. There's no price transparency in health care. So Washington is about fixing the wrong thing. The economy in America Markets allocate scarce resources. They don't do that in healthcare. They don't do that in education. And those are the two areas where we're failing, either economically or in terms of outcomes. So I don't think they fix it. I mean, I think they may have a political fix. They may pass a bill. Right. They may do some, but it doesn't fix healthcare. Okay. And there are things there are things occurring right now in the market that are going to fix health care. If good-thinking people, fair-thinking people, think Republicans and Democrats can find a common ground, it's got to be about our medical care system. When a politician or lawyer comes to Dr. Coburn and speaks to you, what do you tell the lawyers of Washington? I tell them to create, you know, if you want to make do something in Washington to help lower costs, is mandate price transparency and quality transparency, because there is none. Uh, and, it, you know, the two models of total government-run health care are the VA and the Indian Health Service, and you wouldn't want your family in any of those. 
There are exceptions, but by and large, you wouldn't. So if you create price transparency where people can see, all of a sudden you'll change the insurance market. Uh, you'll change the comp- competitive model. I'll give you an example, Tom. In Tulsa, Oklahoma, you can get an MRI done of your spine for $3,700 at one of the hospitals, or you can get it done at an outpatient uh, MRI center for 750 Which one are you going to do? Yeah. I'm going to go to the but, best but Because you're not spending your money, you don't care. Right. But if you're spending your money, you do. So if, in fact, that's available. And, by the way, that $750 is lower than what Medicare pays. Yeah, let me let's have Pim Fox jump. No, I just I, just a, just a quick uh, question for you. Uh, given political inertia in Washington or whatever's not or going to happen, what can people do independent of the government to increase the value of what they've got? Well, healthcare? it's getting ready to happen. I, uh, th- 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 let me just tell you all the things that I've I travel around. I talk about healthcare and investigate things. There's uh, something called healthengine.com. It cuts the price of an outpatient surgery by about 40%. Uh, there is uh, something called Medify, which is an app that's sold that gives the best outcome and the lowest prices in any market. And employers are buying that all the time. There's freestanding surgery centers that do work for Canada and businesses all across the country, right here in Oklahoma, Oklahoma Surgical Hospital. They can't expand because the law said you can't expand if you're a physician-owned hospital. Mm-hmm. The FTC says the physician-owned hospitals have the best outcome and the lowest cost. Let me, let me so ask why would we ban- one, one more quick medical question, and I've got to go one other way here. Uh, Senator Coburn, which nation has the medical system you're most comfortable with? Is it Canada? Is it United no, Kingdom? Switzerland. 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 Please explain. Yeah. Well, they have to buy, and they get a subsidy for the people that, that buy that can't afford it. But but then the insurance companies, there's no problem with pre-existing illness because the insurance companies have to share at the end of the year. Whoever has higher losses, they all share in that. So you have true insurance. We don't have real insurance in America. There's no true indemnification. What you have is prepaid medical expense for which they extract 30%. So we spend $800 billion a year. There's multiple studies that doesn't do anything to help anybody get well and doesn't do anything to prevent somebody from getting sick. That's $800 billion wasted. Market forces will clean that up, but we don't have market forces. Senator, one final – well, go ahead, please, please, please. Well, I'm just saying if you want to fix health care in America, create a true market where price discovery and quality and price and service matter and give people the option of making choices – then you will see it. Why do you think an insurance company doesn't want a hospital to disclose what they're paying them for CPT code? Because they're taking the Because budget. it's ridiculously yeah. low. Yeah. Well, I, hospital- I, I'm going to study the Swiss system. I've got to get this in here because we are Bloomberg 1130 in New York. There are very few fathers that can say their daughter graced stage of the Metropolitan Opera Company. Did you grow up? When did you know that your daughter, Sarah, would be the giant in opera that she became? When did you know that? Oh, I'm not sure I knew it until it happened. She was talented. She was outgoing. And she ended up falling in love with opera in her master's program. And so, you know, she's in in, uh, 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 Eastern Europe right now uh, singing. 
So she she's yeah. she's having fun. She loves it, uh, and uh, we get to be grandparents a whole lot more than we would otherwise because she travels some. Well, that's very good, Senator. Thank you so much. He is the father of the opera singer Sarah Coburn, and he graces us today. Uh, the senator from Oklahoma, Mr. Tom Coburn. Pim, is that cool? We were just at the Met, like like six seven weeks ago. You know, the end of the season. Could you imagine being at the Met? What did you see? Your family is huge into opera. What, I can't, did, remember. can't remember. I saw I saw the bill. I mean. Um, I'll tell you, stocks are up. Okay. Stocks, stocks are up, are but up. come on, I mean, Pim. You know that I did this for you, <laughs> Pim. You know the Met like nobody at Bloomberg. Can you imagine if your daughter walked out there on that stage? Uh, I'd be nervous, and I'd have a very big smile. That would be very good, and you'd also uh, probably you know want to sit in a better seat than I. I sat up so high. How could you I fit? had oxygen. Anyways, that was wonderful. Tom Coburn, the senator of Oklahoma. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of A M L dot com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce Fenner and Smith, Incorporated.